Hey everybody, this is Tom Salemi. You're listening to the Med Tech Talk podcast. Thanks for coming back. Have you uh, thought about doing business in China? It's something that is on uh, everybody's PowerPoint presentation and they need to have a China strategy and have needed to have one for a very long time. But the, uh, the notion can be daunting. And we're going to talk today with Chen Yu. Uh, he's a managing director at Vivo Capital. Vivo, of course, has grown into one of the larger investors uh, in healthcare companies, both in China and in Asia. They have a great sort of pan-Pacific strategy uh, where they tend to follow the lower valuations. If things are heating up in the U.S., they'll go to Asia and vice versa. And right now, they seem to be a, a, in a spot where they're looking at the U.S., but they're also looking to sort of create connections between U.S. medtech and Asia investors and Asian strategics, uh, particularly those in China. And uh, Chen has, uh, and Vivo have built a really great practice uh, just uh, about investing in, in companies that have, pardon the use of the word synergy, but have a great synergy with a company uh, in China, uh, China Kingwai, which was a great uh, deal for Vivo, involved the, uh, the investment in a, an orthopedic spinal company in China. The idea initially was to create a line of generics uh, in orthopedics that might uh, sort of uh, be able to attack the price pressures in the U.S., but instead they sold the company to Medtronic for a great return and uh, turned into an entirely different type of story. Anyway, for startups, uh, again, looking at uh, opportunities in China can be daunting. We talked with Chen today just about what companies uh, should be looking for uh, what sort of what they need to uh, have in place before they go looking at opportunities in China, and uh, and how they might go about creating those those connections. Uh, Chen and Vivo put on a couple of healthcare conferences in in China. One is coming up. It's called the Healthcare Capital and Connection Summit. There's no affiliation with Healthogy, which is the company that puts on the MedTech conference, but uh, but I've been. I've known Chen for a long time, uh, have great interest in his conference, and uh, thought we could talk a bit about that as well. So, hope you enjoy this conversation with Chen Yu. He's the Managing Director of Vivo Capital. Well, Chen Yu, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Tom. It's great to have you here. We've I've been following Vivo's story since before it was Vivo, it, uh, when it was BioAsia back in the, in the 90s, and it's... Uh, sort of been a fascinating story to follow because it is the strategy has sort of followed the the evolution of the the uh, China slash Asian healthcare markets and the in the uh, US healthcare markets whereas before you were sort of backed by Asian investors investing in US startups it's gone through several different iterations and we can sort of follow up on that point uh in a minute but it's uh it's certainly an interesting time between uh between these two markets and I know you you've been at the forefront of uh, sort of almost working as a liaison between companies that uh, that operate in one area and the other. I want to get into that. But one question I've ever really asked you is just how you got into venture capital. I know you got the, the MD from Stanford and, uh, and the MBA from Stanford and your BA from Harvard. But were, were you ever going to be a medical doctor or was, uh, was your path always going to lead to some sort of finance? Yeah, so you know, I basically started off, frankly, heading down the path of being a research physician, um, and then in my third year at Stanford, I actually dropped out and joined a startup that was um, perfectly be- uh, started by a bunch of my old college college classmates who happened to all uh, become entrepreneurs. 
And so uh, I left in 1999, and the company was fortunate to go public just before the uh, the internet crash. Um, but was you know frankly one of those companies that actually had an operating business, and so we we made money, and you know based on the IPO process, we were able to kind of build a real business, and so it ultimately got bought by Microsoft for about six and a half billion, and you know you go through an experience you know like that, and and, and you're frankly probably not going to be a doctor after that. <laughs> uh, yeah, six so. and a half billion, did you say? It was actually the largest acquisition in Microsoft history until Skype, uh, and then, of course, LinkedIn more recently. But um, So it was a very big big deal, um, and you know, that really gave me the taste of what startup life uh, was like. Uh, but I had already, uh, frankly, finished three years of, of, out of four for med school, and, and, and the reality is I, I did like healthcare. And so I wanted to get back into the healthcare game, I, I, in theory, as, a, as an entrepreneur, but I learned very quickly that in biotech, entrepreneurs um, have to have a lot more gray hair than I did at the, t- at the time. And so could find myself largely unemployable. So then I went to business school. And then I found uh, these guys here at BioAsia who were, I would say, you know, frankly, operating almost like a startup venture fund. It was a very small fund, about $60 million. Um, and they were doing you know, a mix, I would say, of you know, standard venture investments, um, pipes, which was very unusual at the time, uh, and new company incubations. So it was effectively a reflection of what we ultimately did do in, in kind of the Vivo brand um, over the next you know, decade and a half. But at the time, we were doing it out of a $60 million fund, which was clearly a subscale. So we were frankly fortunate that the early fund returns were good enough um, to allow us to raise subsequent funds. And that's really what became, you know, what most people in the U.S. know as the Vivo um, kind of uh, portfolio. And then starting in 2005, as you noted, we began to look at China. And that was about the time when we felt that the direct investment opportunities there were emerging and so we kind of jumped onto that train. We were able to convince our limited partners that that was an area of interest. And as one of the early investors there, we were able to have a couple of early successes. So that's really taken us full circle to, I think, the theme that you were talking to, which is that you know, we now enter an age where China is the second largest market in the world uh, in healthcare. And you know, it, it, it serves now not only as a great market opportunity for, for the U.S. companies that are interested, but it's also now a source of capital. And so for lots of different reasons, we just think this is a, a kind of a golden age period where you know, thinking about cross-border opportunities is going to be pretty interesting. I want to just back up for just one second. Now, your, your bio on the website, I don't think any makes any mention of this $6.5 billion company. Uh, is this uh, – uh, what, what company was it? I'm sure it's, it's, you can tell us what sure. it was. And, sure. and um, that, that experience, shouldn't it find its way on the bio of, of a venture capitalist? Because that's a pretty exciting transaction. Yeah. So the company was called Aquantive. Um, so it was a public company called AQNT was the ticker. Um, but it's, it's an internet advertising company. So it has absolutely nothing to do with healthcare, certainly on the surface. Now, so how did you get over there? Yeah. Well, as I said, it, it was started by a bunch of um, kind of college uh, classmates um, who were part of the early founding group, and and so the, the so here's the link. I, I hate to bore people with the, the the technical details, but back then, yeah. So back then, it was all a question of how do you judge and evaluate internet advertising? Like, how do you know one ad is better than the next? And so, if you talk to a scientist, what we'd all say is, well, you should do a randomized clinical study. Um, you should randomize, you know, into group A. People can look at ad number one, and group number two should look at ad number two, and then you can compare which one's more effective. And back then, all they did, they didn't do, they didn't understand that. That's a basic scientific concept. But for advertising guys, what they would do is you just throw up ads and see how many people clicked on it. 
So what we designed was a software system that allowed you to randomize people into test groups so you could actually test quickly and in a dynamic, real-time way um, various ad, what we would call treatments. Or, you know, so like the, the drug treatment, it would be a, an ad treatment. And so by doing that in dynamic, we were able to evaluate which ads were truly better, not just something that a bunch of marketers came up with some arbitrary you know, mechanism to evaluate. We, we actually had a scientific way to evaluate it. And it turns out if you deliver billions of ads a month, getting a 1% improvement in efficacy um, or efficiency is worth a lot of money. So that's what we did. So by the end, we, we delivered almost half the ads for MSN. And that was a big trigger for why Microsoft ultimately bought us. So when that was a success, was there any doubt in your mind about going back into healthcare at all? Or, or did you sort of know that we're, that's where your, your genetic code was lying and you were going to do something in healthcare? Because you could, obviously could have gone in a few different directions. You know, if I was smart, I would have stayed there. <laughs> but I wasn't, and at the time, I certainly felt that I wanted to kind of take advantage of the healthcare part of my background. And, 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 and frankly, it just felt a little more meaningful than Internet advertising. Um, but, you know, I, when I entered the medical market, you know, it wasn't a great time necessarily. You know, starting by, you know, 06, 07, the, the market here in healthcare turned out to be relatively tough. So I actually kind of missed out on, on a lot of the big boom in, in the tech side that, uh, ironically enough, that I've been there, I'd be, on, be sitting on a beach right now instead of talking uh, here on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, consider yourself lucky that you're not sitting on some boring old beach. Uh, so, but, but you have sort of continued that trend. You're, 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 finding, you're finding opportunities. Vivo seems to kind of be moving ahead of the, the trends, again, between uh, U.S. And, and Asian markets. You, Again, you, it started off investing in, in the startups when there were plenty of opportunities to invest in U.S. startups. And then you, you moved to a strategy um, where you started uh, Kongwei, and we can get into that, to sort of bring uh, products from, from the U.S. into Asia. Now it's, it's sort of reversing again. Um, do you just sort of are, – are, do you think you're seeing trends before they happen? Or is Vivo influential enough that you're, you're, you're kind of influencing the trends? You know, I think I think it's a little bit more of the former. Um, I wouldn't say we're so influential that we're going to move the market. I, I do think that because of the way we started, which was a relatively small fund that had to compete with a lot of large, well-known brands, certainly in the you know kind of the the, the, the early 2000s, um, gave us a bit of a DNA that said, look, we've got to be you know kind of more nimble um, if we want to survive and, and flourish in the market. And I think, you know, if you go back to, um, for example, Kang Hui and, and some of our investments in medtech in China, um, that was partly because we were not the premier medtech fund. I mean, 3Arch, DeNovo, many others were, frankly, much better positioned to do U.S. medtech investments than we were. If we, we saw the deal, it meant that those guys had passed. And so we recognized that if we wanted to be successful in medtech, we had to find a niche where we had a real clinical or competitive advantage. And at that time, no one had looked at China, and, and there's an area where we felt like we actually did have an advantage. And so that was, I think, you know, so I think it's almost our outsider status from when we began, I think, has contributed to our willingness to try to um, be a little bit, um, if you want to call it, um, forward-leaning on some of the trends in the market. So how would you assess the needs of, let's take them separately, of um, U.S. Uh, healthcare? And medtech, well, obviously medtech within that. What are the needs of this market that that Vivo can uh, can service, and then we can we can sort of look at the Asian side and see how they both fit together. 
Yeah, so you know, I th- I think you know, now, strangely enough, things have kind of changed. You know, our fund now is one of the larger funds in our space, and so in a weird way, we've kind of reversed place. So now we're we're sitting here as a, one of the larger incumbents, and so I think at this point, you know, we feel pretty competitive in terms of our our deal flow in medtech. So I think the challenge for us is now less about whether we can outcompete other firms for deals and now whether the ecosystem is healthy enough to generate sufficient returns to devote investment dollars into healthcare and uh, into medtech in the US. So, you know, I think that relates a little bit to the theme around China, which is I think the the major unhealthy piece of our current ecosystem is the lack of buyers. And I mean both strategic but also IPO buyers. And without that clear kind of exit path, it's become very difficult, certainly to do early stage medtech. Um, and even late stage medtech has become challenging. Um, and so the way I look at, at China is it's, it's really important, I think, twofold going forward. One is that it's a source of investment capital where, you know, now early stage device companies can, can look to and find, you know, a, a financier of that valley of death, you know, kind of that early pre, uh, pre, uh, preclinical to, you know, late stage proof of concept. And I think the second piece is going to be on the acquisition side. You know, are there exit paths to Chinese strategics or PE funds who are interested in buying U.S. companies for Chinese strategics? Um, is that going to be a source of liquidity that can, again, bring folks back into the medtech investing arena? Hey, everyone. It's Tom here. I'm going to take a quick break from this conversation with Chen to uh, invite everyone to come to our Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. It's not medtech, but it's uh, one of the more dynamic healthcare uh, investment conferences you'll see. So if you're if you're in the space, in the healthcare space, and uh, looking to understand uh, how changes in digital tech and in delivery uh, really impact all of healthcare, check out the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. Just go to healthag.com. It's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com, and check out our great agenda. Now back to this conversation. Do you get a sense that the, the CEOs and investors in the U.S. sort of see the opportunity clear enough uh, for Asian investors and Asian potential Asian buyers uh, to come in? Are they are they open to, to, to that sort of transaction? Clearly, we're talking about it all the time. We had a session about it at our, our MedTech conference. Uh, it's not a new concept. Everyone is supposed to have had a China strategy amongst their PowerPoint presentation. But how do you think the, are these opportunities really viewed uh, by U.S.-based uh, executives and investors. So I think you characterize it appropriately, which is it's clearly something that's now at least on the radar screen. People understand it, that there is an opportunity there. I think we're hitting that second phase where a couple of folks have had mixed experiences. I think some clearly have had good ones. Um, we have a number of companies that we've seen even in our own portfolio where Chinese investors were either the lead or a significant part of financing syndicates. But you've also had people who have gone and had had trouble raising in China, and, and and if you think about it, that probably makes sense. You know, you have companies without relationships in the Chinese market, um, without maybe a clear China strategy, um, and I think expectations may have been misaligned that you know, hey, this might be easy money, and I think the reality is it's never easy to raise money. So if you don't have that right story or those right relationships, you know, it's 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 possible you're gonna have a, a tough time of it. Um, so I do think that it's it's still, I would say, in early days in terms of companies, you know, really being uh, kind of action action oriented around China. Um, but you know, certainly it's changing, and I would expect that over the next two or three years, because I think, frankly, there are so few other options, that uh, I'm going to guess that that's going to become an increasingly important part for for almost any med tech company in uh, in the next couple of years. 
Well, assuming someone isn't working with you for whatever reason, what are what are the two or three things they need to know going into looking for capital in China? So I think the first was is a they, they it's not surprising you, you you need some kind of relationship um, you know into the the market. So whether that's an investment firm like us who can you know guide you toward um, kind of the right investors, or it's going to be an investment bank who can help you know facilitate that. Um, so I think that's that's clearly number one. I think number two is that you know, there, there has to be some kind of plausible China angle. So it can't be, hey, look, I'd like to go raise money in China for a U.S. PMA study, and that's pretty much it. You know, you have to have some rationale for why you'd be looking for money for China. So, for example, I want to get it approved there because that market's pretty interesting. Um, or there's a manufacturing link. There just has to be something. So I think having some kind of China angle to your story is important. Um, and then I think, look, three is being realistic. So I think, you know, if if the story um, – you know, if it if your story isn't great, you know, on some level, you know, it has to be reasonable. Um, it's not, you know, completely dumb money, right? It's 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 these folks, you know, have a different lens, and so they may be more uh, forgiving in certain ways than than U.S. investors. But they're smart enough to smell out, you know, um, a company that that couldn't raise money successfully in the U.S. So I think you have to you have to be realistic in terms of having a, a reasonable story to tell. In terms of the connections, the first item is it is it. Is that more than just having someone who is a broker, lowercase b, who maybe knows the market and says, I can put you in touch with the right people? Do you have to physically know someone at a, a, China's, a Chinese firm or a company that can really make personal connections? You know, I don't think you have to have a person on the ground. I, I do think there are select um, brokers who I think are more reputable and more likely to be successful for uh, for a U.S. company. Um, I clearly the best case would be to have an investor who um, has some you know feet on the ground in both regions, but I actually don't think you need. Um, you, you, for example, we have a, a as you know we run a conference in Shanghai every year, and last year for example there was a company called Spirometrics that was able to raise money from Fosun, and prior to that essentially had as far as I know no relationship with any Chinese investor or company, so they met that contact at the conference and was from you know from their own initiative was able to close the financing so. So I think I think it can happen. It's just it's just a matter of um, intensity of of effort. You know, if you, if it's a peripheral one, you know, you're less likely to be successful. Um, so it's common sense, I think. And this is the healthcare capital and connection summit. And you can give the details on that. And the sake of for the sake of full disclosure, to a conference I've been sort of following and interested in as well. So uh, so um, just give you an opportunity to to, to give a, a, a two minute introduction of the conference when will it be and and sort of what is it what how how does it how is it uh, set up how is it organized sure so it's it's from september 20th to 22nd in shanghai and it really began um as a personal kind of vivo project so uh as i'm as you noted you know for a couple of years i've been very interested in this theme and so from the beginning was trying to curate uh, meetings between us companies and at the time just vivo portfolio companies in china and I recognized that that was something that, while it was great and beneficial for, for our specific companies, if we could make it a bigger event, it would be more useful not only for us but also for the sector. Um, and so SVB had been kind of interested in this concept as well, and so a group of us ended up pulling the, the conference together. And so it's really um, focused on very specifically doing uh, one-on-one meetings to facilitate partnerships, licensing deals, uh, financings, and even M&A between U.S. and Chinese companies. And so today, you know, we, we cap it at 200 people to make it an intimate event. 
And it's, um, you know, I think at this point it's become a, a conference with really great U.S. attendees, um, top-notch U.S. companies and top-notch Chinese strategics and investors. So, um, you know, it's a great, it's just a great way, I think, for any U.S. company that's interested in doing any of those things um, to get their kind of toe in the water in China, learn a little bit. And if they get lucky, and if they have the right, uh, as I said, intensity of effort and the right relationships after that, I think can be successful in closing and financing. And is that enough, Having it in a, going to someplace, that conference or perhaps another one, where the uh, atmosphere is one of connections? Is that sort of enough to, to get that, that uh, connection that a company would need to, to raise the capital? Or should they have um, a connection prior to that conference taking place? You know, I think realistically that's probably going to be the first relationship they're going to create is from a conference like this. I think this is a great starting point. It's certainly the first chapter in the book, you know, where you you make that initial contact, you build some relationships, you meet some of the potential brokers and vendors and or the strategists themselves directly, and then you go from there. Um, I think that that's how I always tell people you have to have realistic expectations. It'd be just like if you came and sprung your, your story onto the U.S. market, you know, you're not going to get, necessarily get a financing done in two months. It's the first step of the process, and you have to say, look, this is going to take me nine months to a year, but i got to start somewhere. And it's going to be really hard to start it from scratch, you know, <laughs> independently, absent relationships. So I think whether it's this conference or others, you just have to commit saying, look, I'm going to make a couple trips to China over the next year, because um, that's frankly what's going to take to close a deal. And, and, and the list of things that you suggested would be good. You, you mentioned a reason for going there. Is there an opportunity for U.S. MedTechs to, to sell rights to a product if it's approved for Asia or, or China? Uh, is, that, is that happening, uh, territorial sales of rights for products? Maybe they keep the U.S., but as part of a financing, they, they, they sell other, uh, other territories? Absolutely. We've done it multiple, multiple times. Um, so, And I'd say they, they really span the gamut. So we've done a couple deals, for example, where we sold um, China rights for a fixed up front and then milestones. So we did that with one of our companies called Carbolin. We did um, a joint, a couple, we've done a couple of joint ventures where, um, in most of those cases, it's either fifty-one forty-nine or fifty-fifty JV with a Chinese partner. In which case, the Chinese partner would fund all the registration costs for the product and fund all the commercial activities. And in return, of course, then the U.S. company would get some profit share. Um, and then we've done just straight up licensing and even just straight up distribution rights. Um, so literally, I think ev- everything that you can imagine has already been done. So there's not a really, I think, from a deal perspective, I think you're going to find Chinese companies being relatively sophisticated in terms of what those structures can look like. Um, the main calibration part that I find for U.S. companies is really just getting a sense of scale. You know, one of the challenges with China is that the numbers are always big, so you think there should be a huge market. But... You, there's lots of nuance to it. And so folks sometimes say, okay, well, gosh, you know, maybe I'm getting, I want to get a 10, 15, $20 million up front. Well, realistically, in many cases, it's going to be single digit. And so kind of making sure that the company in the U.S. understands the scale of the opportunity is important so that they've got the right expectations and, and frankly, can decide if it's worth the effort or not. And you had mentioned uh, that there were a few deals that perhaps didn't go as well as expected, and that may may have uh, set a tone. What with name it, give, provide as many details as you're, as you're comfortable giving, but sort of what went wrong with those deals? Were co- companies just overcapitalized? Were expected, expectations out of line with investors? How would you uh, characterize those, uh, those uh, uh, missteps? Yeah. So, I, you know, some of these are not deals that, that we frankly kind of worked on ourselves. I know that, you know, there are a bunch of U.S. companies that went over to try to do financings uh, over the last couple of years, just weren't able to get traction. 
And I think in most of those cases, um, they were uh, pretty much, uh, I think, failed transactions, mainly because they didn't really have a true China story. They were kind of desperate for cash and essentially went to China with a U.S. story that they hoped Chinese investors would be interested in. And I think because they lacked the relationship and lacked the China angle, you know, the story kind of fell flat. So I think that's kind of bucket one. I think bucket two is, is related to what I would call the expectation gap. And that's that, you know, the U.S. company thinks, okay, you know, there's a billion people. And if I take the same prevalence numbers of the U.S., the market size is, is X. And it turns out for lots of different reasons, because the markets are quite different, the market's really, you know, 0.25x. And so they have just a, a kind of an expectation gap on what the kind of the, the, the size and absolute value of these payments should be. And so they struggle to kind of come to numbers that are meaningful and appropriate for both parties. And so those deals break, break down. So I do very quick math in the very beginning. And so as opposed to, you know, having a long dance, and then negotiating, and then finally coming to the realization that you can't do business. I, I usually go through a very quick exercise with people and say, okay, what kind of, for example, the distribution agreement, what kind of X factory price can you live with? And then I can do a quick multiple of what I think X distributor pricing will be in China and to see if there's enough margin for a Chinese partner. And with that back of the envelope calculation, you can weed out probably 80%, for example, the distribution agreements that you might do because it turns out that the U.S. company can't make that price. Interesting. And just finally, uh, so what is next with uh, for, for Vivo? Uh, you've raised the Panda Fund somewhat recently. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. But what other vehicles? I mean, you've you've got you become one of those firms where you're going to have many different vehicles from which to invest to invest in many different types of companies. It's kind of a NEA almost Obermed kind of strategy. It's exciting. Yeah, so we haven't made any you know kind of public announcements where we're heading, but I think clearly if you just step back and look at the um, kind of the venture capital slash private equity market here. Um, you're seeing GPs like us begin to create segregated vehicles that pursue you know, related but different strategies. And that basically allows LPs to kind of rifle shot their risk-reward profile because obviously doing early stage, for example, is a very different risk-reward than late-stage private equity. Um, so I think we're kind of cognizant of that, and I think looking forward, that's probably where you know we will likely head. But but the reality is, it's a little bit early to say today because um, you know we're we're still investing out of our our current fund, which we raised last year. But I think you know as a broad trend, I think it's unmistakable that that's where the market's heading. So I think for us, you know, we continue to say, look, we're going to be a, a very active you know venture investor here in the U.S. We're going to continue to do active uh, direct kind of growth capital investments in China. And I think we expect to build on that theme by looking at some of these cross-border transactions that we've just talked about. And you know, how we'll fund that and finance those sorts of deals, you know, I think that's a little bit TBD, but it's clearly going to be an area of focus for our firm. In, in, in uh, forecasting where you're going or, or, or laying out your strategy, you must have a sense of what the market will look like in four to five years. What, give, us, give us a glimpse. What do you think? the Where, where will the pendulum be in four to five, four to five years uh, via U.S. and Asian sort of markets, and, and what kind of, uh, I guess, infra interesting uh, infrastructure might we see in that time frame? Well, I think we're clearly seeing a really uh, big burst of interest in Chinese firms who want to expand their marketplace into the U.S. That's partly driven by the fact that domestic growth, as we've all heard in the headlines, is slowing in China. So whereas you know China medtech got to enjoy 20% plus growth rates for the last decade, you know today I'd say it's in the low teens, and I think that's at best. 
And so these Chinese companies are looking ahead and saying, well, how do I kind of resuscitate that kind of growth? And clearly the next opportunity is to come to the U.S. So my guess is what we're going to start to see are a series of transactions that will enable some of the larger Chinese companies to enter into the low-end commoditized areas of the U.S. market. And whether they they do that you know, in big splashy ways, um, where I would like the microport, you know, kind of right medical type of transaction, or it's going to be, you know, a bit on the fringes where you see, you know, kind of direct deals with the Cardinals and the McKessons of the world, where they're supplying lower end commodity products to the U.S. market. I think it's going to be a mix of that. And so, so I think that's going to be kind of, you know, trend one is, is we're going to see hopefully a broadening of the strategics who can play in the U.S., which hopefully will be uh, a positive, um, you know, kind of win behind our backs dynamic for, for U.S. early stage medtech investors. Um, so I think that's one, but that's going to be, you know, look, I think on a relative scale, I still think it's going to be on the margin. Um, you know, I don't think it's, we're, we're not going to see a, a Chinese strategy replacing, you know, the Boston scientists and Medtronics of the world anytime soon. But they may become a, if you want to call it kind of that, that the, the drug analogy of the mid-cap buyer um, that I think has been lacking in the medtech side. And so if you can have a mid-cap buyer that's, you know, a billion to five billion market cap company who can do transactions of a couple hundred million, I think that's going to be enough to help uh, provide a little bit of float to our market here. That would be really welcome. All right. Well, great. Well, thanks for uh, taking the time. Uh, good luck next month on, on the conference and uh, certainly look forward to chatting with you again. Yeah, so thanks, thanks for including me. It's always been uh, an honor to, to, to follow what you're, what you're uh, talking about because it's always a little bit ahead of everyone else. So thanks again for giving me the chance. I'll save that one for, the, uh, for our commercial. Thanks very much for that. Sounds good. Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thanks for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Thanks, Chen Yu, for sharing Vivo's story. I look forward to continuing to follow it. And uh, if you uh, had a few minutes for us, please uh, do me a favor. You can, uh, you can reach out and uh, give us some uh, feedback. Just email me at tom at healthogy.com. It's tom at healthogy, the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. You can also find me on Twitter at medtechtom. And uh, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. It would be a big help. And once you've done that, uh, give us a rating. Let us know how we're doing. And uh, leave a comment. Where are we falling short? What we can do better? Who should we be talking to? Uh, please uh, let us know what you, what you think and how we can do a better job of serving you. We're actually going to uh, take a, a break next week for the Labor Day week. I think everybody's uh, trying to uh, enjoy the last week of summer. So uh, just uh, wait until the first week of September. Uh, we'll have our next MedTech Talk podcast and newsletter sent directly to your inbox. And thanks for joining us again. And tune in after Labor Day for another tale of innovation. <laughs>